So here at the London School of Economics, we are really honored uh, to have a brilliant scholar um, and one of the best historians of Iran's uh, polit politics, uh, 20th century politics. Um, hopefully interpreting and analyzing arguably one of the most important topics for all Iranians. The collective memory of Iranians about the coup of 1953 is probably the most painful. I think uh, the, if, we, if we were thinking about uh, outside interferences in Iran, this, this would be the one that Iranians uh, hate the most, even more than the invasion by uh, Anglo-Soviet uh, um, uh, forces in the 1940s. Um, why? Because it destroyed a fledgling democracy that was being built uh, at the time, a democracy that people had worked very hard uh, uh, towards establishing, and it also removed from power um, a very popular uh, um, leader, Mohammad Mossadegh. Um, was this coup instigated by the British or was it instigated by the Americans? It appeared like the Americans were doing it, but were they alone? Uh, was it a response to Iranian oil nationalization? Um, um, was it a response to Mossadegh's perceived closeness proximity to uh, Soviet Union? Was it because Prime Minister Mossadegh refused a uh, defense uh, 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 package that was offered by the United States? What was at stake? Why did they have to topple the regime and instigate a coup? On a personal note, I must say that for my own PhD and my own research, Professor Abrahamian's book, Iran Between Two Revolutions, has been my academic Bible, <laughs> my reference, uh, what I, what I uh, test everything else against. The reason being that uh, he is brilliant at using uh, first-hand sources, and all of you who are familiar with his work will know, will know that what I'm saying is right. Um, and um, I don't think any serious analyst of Iran um, can uh, go without reading, uh, without having read at least one or two of his books. Um, they've, they've written loads of them here, but I'm, I'm just going to talk about uh, a few of them, just say, mention a few of them, perhaps not even in full. Uh, the History of Modern Iran, The Coup of 1953, Essays on Khomeinism, and a book on Iranian Mujahideen. These are all like little Bibles in their own subjects. So um, uh, he has the title of Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Iranian and Middle East History and Politics at the Baroque College of City University of New York. And he has taught at several universities, including Oxford, Columbia, New York, and Princeton. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Professor Ervand Abrahamian, and I'm dying to hear what he's going to say. Thank you, Masume. If you can hear me well from here, I'll speak from here. Otherwise, I'll pontificate from there. So either way. Is, is the sound okay here? Okay, I'd like to thank you, Masume, for the introduction. I also thank LSE for inviting me. 
Uh, the only time I actually had visited LSE was years ago when I came to visit my friend Fred Halliday. Uh, but uh, sorry, he's not here. Um, now, today I want to talk about really the debate issue of how much the coup was about oil or how much about communism. And if I sound argumentative, it is because I am being argu argumentative. Uh, I think history is more than just te telling good stories about the past. It's more than des describing pretty things about the past. History is really about different arguments. And you can read, argue back and forth until you get some sort of resolution. Now, in this issue of what the coup was really about, the conventional wisdom, and I don't mean just many people, but almost you can say almost everyone I've read about the coup argues that really the motivation of the United States was communism, and that this was the driving motive. Um, so when I'm arguing about, against this, I shouldn't be taking it personally. I'm not arguing against the individuals who talk about this. They might be all very fine people. I'm arguing against their arguments. And uh, you find even you know, very sympathetic uh, uh, writers about Mossadegh. Uh, and I won't give names, but one name I think is very important is uh, Iranian uh, historian Mohammed Mowahed, who's done a tremendous work on uh, the whole crisis. Uh, even he ends up saying, well, the, the Americans' in, uh, motivation in the final analysis was communism. So this has become the conventional wisdom that everyone, I would say, subscribes to. Um, now, my argument is actually uh, that oil was obviously the, the real issue, and communism was just a cover-up. And if you look at the documents, uh, communism actually was not taken as a serious issue for people who were making the decisions. And what I uh, was struck by, the new documents that came out uh, last year, you're probably familiar that the uh, State Department uh, publishes annual volumes on each country. And the annual volume on Iran for the Mossadegh period was issued long before it was supposed to come out. It came out in 1989. And it was such a scandal because it uh, long periods where there was no communications of from according to the uh, the volume from the embassy in Tehran to Washington, uh, there were huge blanks. So the American Historical Association kicked up a fuss that it was a scandal. So eventually, the State Department said, "Yes, we will publish a new volume." And lo and behold, there was many delays. Eventually, in 2017, uh, this new volume came out, uh, about uh, a 1,000 pages. It's not only State Department communications. It's also um, National Security Council uh, memos, also CIA documents. And when this was published, a lot of historians said, well, this volume has actually nothing much new to say. 
Why? Because they were looking for actually information on the coup itself. Uh, and that there is very little in the volume on the actual coup itself. But there is, there is not much new to say about the coup itself because the Wilbur report that was leaked in 2000 is actually the last word you could have about the coup, really. There's not much more you could really try to find out. There are certain gaps that could be badly filled, were probably never filled because the information won't be there. But that has enough information about the coup. But what this volume, 1,000 pages, has very much is a lot of information about U.S. policy in Iran from 1951 to 54. And what you find there very much is, I think, supports the argument that really oil was the problem that really concerned the United States uh, and communism was not really an issue that worried uh, United States, at least the decision makers. Let's take the question of oil. Uh, the docu new documents really reinforce the view that when uh, the oil was nationalized, George McGee, who was Truman's special uh, representative sent to Iran, and throughout the whole crisis, he became the basically the point man dealing with Mossadegh about the oil. He rushes to Iran to prevent the Shah from actually signing the oil nationalization bill. So the U.S. is right against, against the nationalization from the beginning. Uh, incidentally, uh, McGee was an oil man himself, and he worked closely with the American oil companies. And in the whole, throughout the crisis, actually, the American oil companies had a very strong say, and they were constantly in touch with the State Department, uh, pr pressuring that the idea of nationalization should not be accepted. Be why? Because it would be a threat to their interests elsewhere throughout the world. So a bad example, if it's successful, would have a domino effect uh, throughout the world, Venezuela, Indonesia, and so on. And uh, this is not a new discovery of mine. After actually I'd worked on it, I discovered there was an American uh, historian, uh, his name is David uh, Painter, uh, if you Google him, you'll get David, the, the uh, French revolutionary painter. You have to dig around. But he had done a considerable amount of work on actually the oil, American oil companies. And he had also come to the conclusion that the American oil companies were very adamantly against the a successful nationalization, not because the conspiracy theory is that, well, the American companies wanted to replace the British in Iran. That wasn't their concern. Their main concern was what an example this would set elsewhere. In fact, one uh, executive of the oil companies, American oil companies, uh, told McGee it would be better that Iran went communist rather than had a successful uh, nationalization. So what McGee came to Tehran, he discovered that the mood was such there was no way he could persuade the Shah uh, to 
uh, not go, not sign the agreement. In fact, it was a misunderstanding of the Iranian constitution anyway. The Shah couldn't have re uh, refused. The Majlis had already passed it. The Senate had passed it, and the Prime the Shah Mossadegh was already elected prime minister. So what McGee did uh, cleverly, he had this formula where he said, uh, we will accept the principle of nationalization, um, but Iran is not capable of running the oil industry, so someone else has to run the oil industry. Of course, the British were hoping they would run it, but his idea was more of a consortium that there would be other companies involved. But from the beginning, the notion was that we will accept the notion, the principle of nationalization, but you can't run the oil industry. Uh, later on, actually, when the World Bank visited Abadan, discovered that Iran was quite capable of running the oil industry. That was a myth. Uh, it, the question was, if Iran wanted to export a lot, it would, need, would have needed a lot of foreign technicians uh, but that was another issue, because if Iran was running the oil industry, it could then hire the technicians. In fact, it put ads in. Thousands of Germans were volunteered to actually go to Iran to work for Iran. The Britain managed to stop that, because at that time, Germany was very much still under British influence, at least parts of Germany were. At Put, uh, Britain put a, put a full stop to that. So the question was not foreign technicians, but who would be hiring them? And according to this formula of McGee, it would be uh, these foreign companies uh, would hire, would decide who would be hired as a technician, not Iran. So from the beginning, uh, basically, the American offer was a very acceptance of the notion of uh, the notion of uh, nationalization, but not the, the actual practice of nationalization. So all the negotiations you have from whether it's during Harriman or Stokes, World Bank, and so on, it always boiled down to that they, the Americans would say, yes, we accept the principle. But when you came down to talking, they would tell, try to uh, overwhelm Mossadegh with statistics, with the price of oil in, in the Mexico versus Iran, try to basically overwhelm him with data and the problems and complications. And Mossadegh actually is smart enough to go to the core. The core issue was who is going to actually control the industry, which is who decides how to, whether to increase production, lower production, who to sell it to, where to explore, how much money to put into basically new exploration and so on. So of course the word nationalization in English or any language means the state owning that industry. And for him nationalization meant that Iran would be, had to control its own industry, not assign it to someone else, to oil companies from the West to run it. So what you get throughout these oil negotiations is there's never actually a genuine compromise offer. And the notion that somehow the Americans were honest brokers that clobbered together a genuine offer where Iran would nationalize its oil and keep it nationalized, that was never on the table. 
So often the argument, even the people who are very much in favor of Mossad there, say, well, th he made a mistake. He should have accepted this offer because of the offer was accepting nationalization without actually looking at the details of what was being on the table. So it's one thing you look at the headlines, you know, America accepts nationalization, but if you look at the actual negotiating positions, you, then you see that what is being offered is not nationalization. Um, McGee actually, after a short brief negotiations with the British, got the British to accept the formula. The British at first said, well, even if, if we accept the principle, this is dangerous. We don't want to accept the principle because any nationalization is expropriation. Uh, but McGee um, managed to pressure the uh, British eventually, uh, well, we did do much to accept the principle of, uh, of nationalization as long as it wasn't actually uh, put into effect. Uh, here uh, is a quote from Attlee. Clement Attlee was prime minister. Clement Attlee usually was a, a straight talker, actually very clear English, uh, went to the heart of it. Here you can see a convoluted language he uses. He says, uh, in accepting McGee's formula, he sent the following message to Washington, quote, we have to agree on principle of nationalization, like the dominion status. It, it might well be that in negotiating agreement in such a context, a number of modifications would be introduced that the resulting agreement would confer something that was, in effect, a good leave less than dominion status. What does this mean, basically? <laughs> First of all, it was a dominion or something like a dominion state. So this convoluted language was basically a way of basically even diplomatically covering up the fact that nationalization is not really effective. Well, you can say one had to wait till all the documents came out to find out what was going on. But someone like uh, Professor Elwell Sutton at that time uh, could see through all the verbiage. Uh, Elwell Sutton was a, a curious uh, personality. Besides being a professor, he had worked in the oil company. He had worked in the foreign office. So he was savvy to read the headlines and the fine print. And he came to the, basically the reality that what was being offered was very different. He said the, the, the Britons and America was willing to accept the principle of nationalization as long as that principle was not put into effect. So you didn't have to wait uh, 50 years to discover that. This was written right there at the time. A savvy person could see that. But most journalists, unfortunately most historians, were taken overcome by the headlines and the political information that West was willing to accept nationalization. So when you actually come to a lot of the histories of the Mossadegh period, the, again, I stress even the most favorable his, 
of uh, biographies of Mossadegh in the oil crisis, they say, well, he made a mistake. He should have accepted the two offers that were given to him. Uh, the, and it's not quite clear which offers they're talking because they were two final offers. One was the World Bank offer, and the other was the what was called the Churchill Truman letter, then became the Churchill Eisenhower letter offer. So if you look at both of these, again you see uh, the problem it was not accepting really nationalization. The first one, the World Bank, uh, was first of all an interim agreement. It was not an acceptance of the nationalization. The whole thing was going to be put off to be determined by the International Court that, uh, uh, for two years later. In the interim, the World Bank was to run the oil industry. So Mossadegh said, well, you're going to run it on my behalf, and they said, no, actually, we have to run it on behalf of both the AIC and, the oil, and, and, uh, United, and, and Iran. And then the problem, of course, Mossadegh raised was, well, in two years' time, I may not be here because the Brit British are trying to get rid of me from the first day I became prime minister. <laughs> so there's no guarantee that in two years' time an Iranian prime minister would still be insistent on nationalization. So th this, uh, what the famous World Bank offer was not really a serious offer set to settle the issue. Um, when I first pointed this out, I got an angry letter from an Iranian official in the World Bank saying actually the people uh, in the World Bank were really honest people. I'm sure they were honest people. I'm, good, I'm sure they were good husbands, good parents, good even pet owners who took their dogs for walk every day. But the offer here was not really an offer about accepting of nationalization. Eugene Black, who was the head of the actually World Bank, uh, he was a, a, a very conservative Republican, very much working closely with the uh, Republicans in Washington. And every time he drew up an offer, he made sure both America and Britain uh, okayed it before he sent it to Mossad. So there was a lot of double dealings here. And so the World Bank offer really, actually technically Mossad never rejected it officially. Uh, he, has, he appointed Schacht, the German, um, German uh, uh, monetary specialist, uh, to go to Washington to be able to uh, pursue the negotiations. So it was like a pursuing rather than ending it. Uh, Schacht was not permitted to enter the United States on the grounds that he had worked with the Third Reich. But of course, this was a time when a lot of Nazi, former Nazis were literally being taken out of prison and being put in charge of very important places or uh, sectors of the German economy. So it was obviously an excuse to sabotage this uh, World Bank, uh, basically, route. The other route, the other so-called offer that was made, the Churchill-Truman-Churchill-Eisenhower letter offer, it's true, the, there the principle of nationalization was again accepted, but there was a, a catch-22 in it. And the catch-22 was the question of compensation. Some books say, well, 
Mossadegh rejected this because he rejected the notion of compensation. Actually, he never rejected the notion of compensation. The original nationalization bill, in fact, had a clause that there would be compensation to the oil company. So it wasn't a question of principle of accept, uh, refusing nationalization. The people who object, objected nationalization were people actually in the majlis, Bagai, who was trying to undermine Mossadegh, and who said Mossadegh is willing to accept, uh, accept uh, 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 compensation. This is a betrayal of the nationalist cause because this means he's giving up something he shouldn't give up. Mossadegh himself was willing to accept the giving of, com of compensation. The catch-22 was what would the compensation be based on? And it's interesting, the new uh, CIA documents, besides the documents I mentioned, the CIA has also put on the web what they have a CIA uh, library. A lot of documents from the CIA on this period that don't appear in the volume I talked about. There, there's an interesting long letter from a Farman Farmoyan who used to be a lawyer working for the oil company. And he writes a long letter to actually the State Department saying, you, the only way Mossadegh can accept uh, this deal is if you actually give a slump sum of what compensation is or state that compensation would be based on the value of the oil installations and the oil uh, venture of the AIOC in Iran in 1951. So it'd be compensation, what is the value of the industry? And what Mossadegh was truly and genuinely, and it turns out to be with validity uh, suspicious, was that the British idea of compensation was not on the value of the industry at that time, but the projected value of what the industry would be worth and what the oil company would be losing from the period of 51 to the end of the concession 1994. So what they were worried was they would take the highest level of profits of 51 multiply it for those years and come up with the astronomical uh, figure. And in fact, uh, Farman Farman says this would be an astronomical figure. And you find actually Acherson and people in the State Department say, yes, the, the British are thinking about an astronomical figure. <coughs> and this was clearly what this would mean, is if, let's say, the, this was accepted, Iran might end up with the oil industry nationalized, but they would be in the term that was used in bondage till the end of the century. And the last thing Mossad they wanted to leave as a legacy <laughs> to the country that he bonded the country to basically an astronomical sum all the way till the end of the century. So in this debate actually, uh, even Henderson, the American ambassador, realized that there was a catch-22 to it, but he went still along with it because by then he was actually in favor of a coup. And you find in the, in the uh, Washington, 
uh, there is no uh, willingness to actually come on, I, on the Iranian side on what the definition of compensation was. And in the National Security Council meetings, Eisenhower actually rarely talks, he's tended to be distant from, not get his hands dirty about things. A number of times he says basically, international contracts have to be sacred, that one cannot undermine international agreements. What this has been is, of course, the agreement Iran had with AIOC from 1933. If you undermine this, then all sorts of international uh, agreements, the sanctity of private property, the sanctity of international oil agreements, uh, would go down the drain. This would affect, again, American oil companies too. So in interesting National Security Council debates, this is often an issue that comes up. You even get the Secretary of Defense. I'm not sure why he's concerned about international agreements. He butts in and says, yes, America should be concerned about sanctity of international agreements. So technically, again, with this uh, issue of the Truman uh, uh, or Eisenhower uh, Churchill letter, the Mossadegh never actually rejected it. All he wanted was clarification of what compensation would be based on. And he couldn't get that. And at one point, he actually said to Henderson, well, I'll, I'll, he threw the ball into the American court. He said, I'll let uh, Professor Eisenhower, I, I trust him, I'll get, uh, he, can, he can actually determine what the value would, would be. I think this was obviously a trick because Mossadegh also couldn't have that authority. The match less would eventually have it. And of course, Henderson says, well, you know, the, the president wouldn't have such authority to make such a decision. So basically, they never responded to Mossadegh's uh, request what a compensation would be based on. So the oil, I think the issue is very much there. And there was never really acceptance of nationalization, serious acceptance of nationalization. So the idea that somehow Mossadegh could have settled the issue without having to, the, the resulting in the, a coup is a mirage. And it's even the people who are very pro Mossadegh fall into this trap of saying, well, they don't blame Mossadegh, they blame some of his advisors for giving him, for being too intransigent about this issue. Now, turning to the question of uh, communism, here uh, the documents show actually an interesting tug of war <coughs> right from the beginning of the almost the day oil bill was nationalized. Tug of war in uh, National Security Council between basically two groups. Uh, some are more uh, State Department, more academic types, and the other group is basically uh, 
uh, CIA, but it's not just general CIA. I would call it there's a deep state, to use a modern term, a deep state that exists even from January 1951. The deep state in the State Department's formed of people like Alan Dulles, Helms, Roosevelt, um, Wiesner, who was at one point uh, second assistant of the CIA, uh, uh, Donald Wilbur. So all the people we know later were instrumental in the August 53 coup. They didn't suddenly appear in Washington in the uh, CIA with Eisenhower in um, 53. Eisenhower came, was elected in November 52. He came in 50, uh, January 50. These people were actually there in, as part of the inner core running this, uh, uh, the uh, Iran State Department of the CIA in January of 51. And their argument right from beginning, and this is articulated by Dulles, is that basically Mossadegh has to go. The week Mossadegh was elected, he's talking about he has to go. The Shah should dismiss him. Uh, the Shah should actually dissolve the match less. The Shah should appoint a new prime minister, and we will help him appoint the new prime minister, and this will resolve the issue. This was actually very much similar line of the British at that time, that the Shah should just get rid of Mossadegh. Um, so this hardcore, I would say, was there right from the beginning. Then you have a number of other people, and it's hard to tell who they are. For some strange reason, a lot of the names are still kept classified, which is weird because these people would be in there 100 years old if they're still around. But many of these names are still uh, basically not declassified, so we don't know who they are. But one of them is probably Professor Upton, who was quite a savvy person, uh, who was, wrote a nice, actually quite a good book on Iran. Another person may have been Kyler Young, but again, you're not sure of that because the names are not given. And so this tug of war between the two groups, the more, I would say, down-to-earth people were arguing that Mossadegh's regime is quite actually um, stable, it has durability, it is very popular, uh, it's not really in danger of going communist, uh, and also then sometimes it becomes sociological, which is interesting, because they argue that this national front, Mossadegh, really represents the emerging modern middle class. And then you have the other side, counter-arguing, saying, no, no, this all muddied. Some of these people in the National Front are actually feudalists. They're not really reformers. Uh, there are maybe reformers will come from the other side. FDR was a rich person. He was a reformer. So maybe a reformer in Iran will come from, from the old classes, not from the people of uh, the National Front. So it becomes a sociological debate. But at the core of it was uh, to write the national intelligence estimates for Iran. And the earlier ones were fairly down to earth. They were written by probably people like Upton. 
that really there is no communist danger. This is a government that is popular. U.S. should work with it or try to negotiate with it. While the others from the right they won were saying, no, this government has to go. It is basically uh, dangerous. It's opening up the road to communism. And uh, it is a basically uh, uh, the situation is dire. And often Dulles is trying to get Roosevelt to write a new NIE report in Iran, basically saying the sky is about to fall, the country is about to go communist, and something has to be done. Uh, this is even under Truman, not under Eisenhower. So this tug of war goes back and forth. So similar to today. So similar to today. Yeah, <laughs> but it's often seen what goes on behind the scenes is interesting. Um, so, event, uh, so interesting thing is in this debate, even the inner core of the CIA, the Dulles people, really don't control the, the reports. You get even a report from the CIA written on August the 13th of 1953. This is two days actually before the scheduled coup. 13th or, it says basically there is no communist danger, that the Communist Party is a small, weak, uh, it's not talking about a re revolution. Uh, it's at best trying to get to power uh, through the parliamentary method. Uh, and then it points out that it got something like 2.3% of the electorate at that time. So if you think about it, that if you're using uh, that 2.3% of the electorate and trying to get to power, it's going to take you another 100 or 200 <laughs> years to think. So for the CIA, this official document, there was really no danger of a communist coup. Uh, one of the funny reports that comes up, uh, the guy who was on the ground, CIA, reports that the, the, the document, that the, the book that the two-day party is using as instruction for their meetings is a book, and he gives a very garbled title and obviously what it is is Lenin's book on infantile communism, uh, left wing infantile communism. And of course, if you, that's a book you're using, that's not a book you'd be using if you were thinking about a revolution or a coup. He doesn't, he doesn't gather that, doesn't have the knowledge that. But generally, the people who were analyzing the two-day as a party in, the, in Tehran, uh, their reports are actually fairly uh, down to earth. The British, even more so, they always poo pooed the idea of a communist takeover. And one reason I suspect they poo pooed it is because from 1941, uh, they had been closely monitoring the military. Uh, here, of course, we don't have access to MI6. Uh, we don't have much access to either the military attache reports. But there are indications sometimes with the embassy reports that the US, uh, the British are actually 
keeping close tabs on what goes on in the Iranian military. Uh, to give you two examples, uh, two people who were heads at various times of G2, the Iranian uh, military intelligence, was uh, General Arfa, and the other one was Colonel Akhavi. Both of them worked closely with MI6. And their job was basically to identify any army officer with left-wing views. And this was easy to do. Uh, any officer that didn't take bribes was obviously suspect <laughs> of being, having leftist attitudes. Another was what newspapers you read. Of course, from 41 to 53, there was a lot of open press. People picked up the newspapers. You could tell what people's politics were, what they were. So it was very easy to identify, basically, leftist officers. And from 41 onwards, actually, the G2 was systematically relegated any officer they suspected of not being uh, reliable to uh, basically peripheral jobs. You know, send them off to Bal Baluchistan or somewhere, or send them off to teach in the military academy. But make sure that the serious uh, field officers, and the real serious field officers were tank officers, that these, of these such leftist officers would not be in those crucial positions. So the, the British were very confident that there was no danger of a communist, and if there was any attempt by the communists to take over, the army was quite capable of crushing it. So what you get, therefore, is the awareness of the, both the Americans and the British that really there was not a communist threat. But again, to use a modern there, fake news. Uh, there was constant barrage that there was a communist danger. So you would have people like Alan Dulles, who had friends in the American press, putting newspaper articles about the communist danger. And this, of course, would then often be picked up by the Amer Iranian press. And again, it's very astounding how many newspapers in Iran were actually in the pay of the CIA. This is another thing that comes out in the new documents, that this is not just paranoia, that the CIA had agents in Iran, they actually had a lot of cohorts of newspapers. Another thing actually that one had never noticed, I had never suspected, is in the Majlis elections under Mossad there, the 17th Majlis elections, the CIA actually poured a lot of money into those elections. So a lot of the deputies had got into the Majlis with CIA money. So the problems that Mossad there had the match less wasn't really the question of, of his policies or his uh, question of democracy. There was a hard core of people in the match less uh, who were in the pay of the MI6 and also the CIA. Uh, and we can figure out who they were, but there's no smoking gun because in the Wilbur report, interestingly enough, uh, Wilbur at one point says there will be an annex in the report of all the journalists, 
deputies, politicians who were receiving money. But either that annex was never written, but it's never appeared in the release document that was then the uh, New York Times released in 2000. So th that, that remains sort of still a mystery. So what you find is there that there is a lot of uh, propaganda in the press about communist danger. Uh, one thing I, again in the new documents that came out, apparently in the Iranian press there was a lot of articles supposedly by a Soviet defector from the Soviet secret police, a person called Vasilov. I don't know if he existed or not. <coughs> Apparently he had written articles, again supposedly, in an American uh, magazine claiming that the National Front was totally controlled by the two-day party. And this was reprinted, translated in Iran as a, basically a, a reliable fact that the, two, the two National Front was really a front for the, for the two-day party. I mean, the, the whole thing is just so bizarre. It's more bizarre than the idea of the weapons of mass, mass destruction. But anyway, this was the sort of mood that was created uh, both in United States and in Iran about the communist danger. So if if uh, oil was the real issue and communism was not the real issue, why is it so many historians and even analysts, you know, years later still uh, buy the old argument? Well, I, I would suggest there, I could offer basically four uh, trying to answer why this old conventional views has become so ingrained, acceptable, accepted. Uh, one is that at that time there was a very clever media, basically, war, both in the United States and in Iran, that the West had accepted nationalization and offered Mossad there a fair deal. And therefore, if the deal was not accepted, then it, the problem was there. So even good, uh, uh, basically, uh, sympathetic writers of Mossad there, uh, Kidzer is one, De La Bog, De Belago, I don't know how we pronounce it, uh, uh, Christopher De Belago, um, who's written a very nice biography of Mossad. They argued that basically Mossad therefore made the mistake not accepting it. Kinzer's answer is that Mossad had a martyrdom complex. She uh, martyrdom complex. He rather be overthrown rather than uh, succeed. Uh, bizarre argument. Uh, the other argument was Mossad that was misled by bad advisors. Uh, they persuaded Mossad not to go along with it. So what you find is this, uh, still even nowadays, this idea, the, the propaganda that was waged that this was a good offer, basically a genuine offer is, accept, is accepted. Actually in, in the year 2000 when New York Times released the Wilbur Report, Grisner, uh, who was very instrumental, a journalist there, uh, did a good job in getting it 
leaked out. He says again, in, as an introduction to the thing, he says it was basically uh, Mossad that uh, should have accepted the fair deal and then there wouldn't have been a coup. So I, the, the burden of the problem was really Mossad there. So it, this, I would say, uh, media propaganda can have long-term effects and one really has to be smart like Elwell Sutton to be able to cut through it. Uh, another uh, argument that is often uh, or an answer to the question of why is that is the Cold War. This is the discourse of the time was the Cold War. Uh, so I'm not saying the Cold War didn't exist. I'm not a postmodernist deconstructionist that say the past is anything you make it and maybe there was never a Cold War. There was a Cold War. But the question is whether this crisis had anything to do with the Cold War or not. And at that time, uh, if you wanted to legitimize any policy, you had to tie it into the Cold War. So it was the discourse of the time. To put this simply, if Alan Dulles wanted to throw his grandmother under the bus, he could justify it by idea that this is necessary for the Cold War, to save <laughs> democracy for evils of communism. So there is often this need to, whatever you're doing it, put it in the context of the Cold War. So, and there's a, there might be even a legal bureaucratic reason for this. The famous National Security NSC of 68 is the famous basically blueprint for Truman's foreign policy. It basically said that the aim of US policy is to uh, contain communism and work uh, and uh, work to undermine communism. So the target was communism. There was nothing in that about neutralism. The word third world didn't exist. So there was nothing about overthrowing, let's say, non-communist uh, government. But to be able to work within that framework legalistically, the State Department and the CIA would have to basically bend their facts to fit it into that context. So therefore, even if they knew Mossad that was not a communist national front, was not a communist, communist front organization, they had to somehow bring that discourse into the discourse that this was had to do with communism. So uh, if, if you're still a believer that the, that the coup was a commu about communism, actually the new documents give you a lot of fuel because almost every document about the crisis in Iran starts off with the context of the communist international danger, then gets into the nitty gritty of it. Okay. Uh, it's like if nowadays you read anything from the Middle East, it might start with the introduction in the name of God and so on. But how many people would then go and accept that what's in the document has anything to do with the introduction 
and uh, basically the formula at the beginning. So these documents have a formula that communism is the danger, we have to be aware of it, but when you get to nitty gritty of it, uh, the discussion really often boils down to the question of sanctity of contracts, international agreements have to be uh, accepted and so on. One should not undermine sanctity of agreements because that, well, that would set uh, bad examples elsewhere and so on. So this becomes, you could say, the discourse of the time is communism and that adds a lot of fuel to modern historians uh, who look at the documents at their first value. Another third reason given is um, it comes from uh, actually from Amer British sources. A lot of the British writers uh, who were involved in the coup later talk about it. Uh, 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 Monty Woodhouse, uh, Foley, uh, the, the number of people who were actually involved in. They are right that basically, yeah, we knew that uh, communism wasn't the danger. But we went to the Americans and we used the communist bogey. And this is often picked up saying, basically, here are the perfidious British hoodwinking the naive Yankees. And this becomes convenient in America, too, that basically uh, we Americans did something wrong, but it was the British who actually were the clever ones. But to accept this idea, you have to accept that people like Eisenhower, the Dulles brothers, Roosevelt, were naive simpletons. There were many things, but I assure you they were not naive simpletons. They also knew that communism was not a danger. But they also wanted a coup, and they were using this argument or blowing up that argument for something that was really nothing to do with communism. It had much to do with oil. And again, I don't want to get personal, but people like Roosevelt who are in fact very much involved with the oil companies and so on. And I, the Dallas brothers actually, even before the oil crisis, worked for uh, AIOC and their, uh, uh, their uh, legal lawyer's company worked for the American oil company. So they, it wasn't like they were coming out of the blue, nothing new, nothing about the oil industry. Um, in this fear of communism, actually one thing that was often used, again, propaganda-wise, was clever. It was Czechoslovakia. Constantly you have reference, in, even in the Iranian press that was echoing the American press, that you know, in Czechoslovakia in 49, the communists had carried out this coup and similar thing it would ha could happen in Iran. And this, of course, for an average person could be quite uh, fearful, quite, uh, quite actually uh, 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 potent. Uh, but if, again, you're smart, and people like Dulles, people are hard-nosed politicians, they knew that there's no two countries diff more different than Czechoslovakia than Iran. After all, Czechoslovakia in '49, the Communist Party and their allies dominated uh, politics. They controlled the main ministries. 
They controlled the army. The, most of the uh, Czech officers were trained by the Red Army. Uh, the, the communists actually were already in power. Their coup literally meant uh, uh, pushing the Masaryk out of the window. That was the coup. Iran was a very different situation. You had really a, a small communist party. Counter to that, you had an army that the Britain could rely on. On top of that, both Britain and the United States had huge uh, paramilitary forces. Uh, Britain was arming the Bahjaris, the Shah Savans, the Lures, so they were, uh, you, the, uh, the Bahjaris were by some, themselves an army of 10,000. Now we know the U.S. had basically a base in the Rashkai territory. Uh, there were some 10,000 Rashkais armed by the Americans. So in, in Czechoslovakia, there was no counterforce, basically, against the communists. Here, there were major counterforces. So again, Czechoslovakia was a very, I think, a potent image to use, but for realists, it had nothing to do with reality. Now, a final reason not to end up is why the conventional wisdom has become so dominant. It's to do with actually American historiography of American foreign policy. There's a long current in American foreign policy writing that American foreign policy is not dictated by economic forces. Other countries like Britain might be motivated by oil or economic force. But US foreign policy is motivated by ideals, ideas, uh, basically by ideology, not by economic forces. Um, in fact, uh, the, the American historian who's done most work on the mechanics of the coup uh, writes that anyone who thinks oil had to do with the coup is an economic determinist. Uh, I, if you say oil was an issue, then you're subscribing to the notion of dialectical materialism, historical materialism. It's a big jump from one to the other. But again, the notion is that if you bring economics to into it, you are in fact uh, basically subscribing to a Marxist view of history, American foreign policy is always driven by ideals. And the ideals here uh, were to save Iran from communism. The, it may have been a tragedy, but it was basically the motivations were good. Uh, the, the road to hell is often paved with good motive, mode intentions, really. And you find that uh, very actually important people who've done a great deal of work on the coup, uh, someone like Malcolm Byrne, who's been instrumental in getting, uh, getting archives declassified, and especially on Iran, he's been bugging the State Department for years to release documents. Uh, in an interview recently, he said, well, you know, American foreign policy is always in, uh, motivated by good intentions, uh, especially with coup. Even, he says, in the uh, Iraqi war, the intentions were good. The results may have not been good, but the intentions were good. 
So there is always this, I think, ideological reason to avoid the issue of oil. And to end up, uh, there was a famous uh, 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 philosopher of the, in the 19th century who observed that when we judge people, we don't judge them by their own view of themselves. We try to judge it by sort of their actions. Similarly, if we judge historical personages, we don't judge them by what they said or they thought they were doing. We try to judge it by the reality and what their real uh, politics were. So again, here I think one has to look at the, at the time, what the intentions, or not what their avowed intentions were, but what was the heart, the realistic, basically, interests of the parties. And the, the, the main interest, I would argue, is very much the issue of oil, not the issue of communism. I'll end there. Thank you very much indeed. That was most uh, interesting, especially the parallels with today and how it helps us to think about uh, the way the foreign policy United States um, uh, is designed and thought around. Um, yes, I will take uh, uh, questions soon, but I was um, just wanting to kick this off with one question of my own, if I may. Um, do you think that the uh, fact that Mossadegh did not accept um, offers for a defense package by the United States. This was, this was also very important. They wanted Mossadegh to take um, the, the military package from Iran uh, and to kind of be dependent on Iran, but Mossadegh rejected this. I, 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 I was quite surprised myself when I found these documents, and there was a lot of discussions between Henderson um, and Mossadegh, and Mossadegh refuses it, saying that if we buy so much in military equipment from the United yeah. States, we would be totally dependent on you for the defense of our country. Not only do we not want our oil to be uh, led by you. We also don't want the defense of our country to be in your hands. I don't know whether you have uh, any, you think that might have played a role as well. Um, actually, in, in, in the military uh, agreements, Mossadegh was willing to continue the, 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 the agreements that existed from 41, which was basically training for the military, gendarmerie, and police. So there were three, three military agreements. He was willing to pursue that, mainly because he was still wanted to remain on talking terms on United States. Um, if the US had pressured him to basically join the Western alliance, then that would have been a problem. Uh, and again, this was implicit. I think people like, uh, both the Republicans and uh, Democrats had the agenda that eventually they wanted Iran part of an alliance. So it wasn't a question of uh, preventing the Soviets taking over Iran, but basically having Iran as an ally. So that would, they realized that Mossadegh was a neutralist. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they, uh, 
again, here is the underlying. Often when they look at different candidates in Amer Iranian politics, uh, they are very suspicious of politicians who favor neutralism. So in one of the documents I find very interesting is long before the coup when they're talking about getting rid of Mossad there, they have a meeting where they have a list of 18 candidates who would be good to replace. It's like a, a recruiting for a professor position in a university. You have a short list. You have their curriculum vitae. They have 19 candidates. And they look through these candidates to see who would be appropriate. This is long before they're talking actually a military coup. They're talking about replacement politically. And one of the candidates that is there is uh, Batin Daftari. Mm -hmm. uh, and they say, well, you know, he's a good politician, he's been around, but he's not suitable because he's known as uh, neutralist. Uh, uh, neutralist Joe. <laughs> I, his foreign policy is neutralism. Yes. Uh, yeah. Another thing for me was very interesting in this list of candidates is Saleh uh, was, a, was one of the candidates. Uh, Saleh had good uh, credentials. He uh, studied in, uh, in American college. He had uh, impeccable English. Uh, he didn't confront the Shah about constitutional issues. Uh, he was very soft-spoken, uh, very diplomat, diplomat. But uh, Henderson, the American ambassador, nixed him uh, on absolutely no. You can't even consult, think of, discuss Saleh because Saleh is just as adamant as Mossadegh about oil nationalization. Um. Yeah. Interesting enough, uh, the Shah wanted Saleh. He didn't realize that the Americans were against it. But here, I think, is the litmus test that really was the oil issue or not, because here Saleh was quite acceptable otherwise. On that issue of oil, he was not acceptable. Mm. Thank you. Uh, one there. Uh, OK, I take one there and one there. And one in the middle. <laughs> okay. Uh, could you speak up? I still have problem yeah, jet lag on my ear. Yeah, he has it. Hi, I would still like to defend the conventional wisdom. Uh, I think your whole argument is based on this assumption that nationalization and communism were two separate things in the minds of Americans, while at that time these two ideas were deeply associated with each other. You know, the Americans looking at nationalization at that time, you know, two things would come to their mind, communism and fascism. So they didn't have any other idea about, you know, a third world nationalism that could exist separately from communism and fascism. So in the end, I don't think you can dismiss communism. Thank you. In that corner? No, over there at the top. It's okay, next time we come to you. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. Uh, I think it's very interesting to try and avoid terms like the UK, America and the West because these are just pieces of land have no consciousness as far as I'm aware. I think it's more important to use the terms like Christian ideology and religion. These are the dominant factors of reason for executing ideas and action. 
And it's these actions and, and which they commit which take out countries which are coming independent of these major empires. So it's not just Christian, but the other religions as well. Thank you. So I think it's important that we try and change the language. Would you agree with that? Thank you. Thank you. Um, thanks for the very enlightening uh, conversation. Can you use the microphone there? Oh, yeah, one? just in front of your mouth. <coughs> Thanks for the um, uh, very enlightening um, argument that you brought in. Um, coming from oil and gas business, uh, I truly agree that um, it's about ideology that Americans uh, will drive. It's not about like what Europeans co countries will Please decide. Please hold it in front of your mouth. Yeah, of course. Sorry. Oh, oh, sorry. Um, and that's not about the cost benefit. It's all about how what we have to do. Then we come to the cost, and we we make the cost out of what we have actually achieved. So yes, that is correct. And, but what I think is uh, the, the way you segregated the two items, oil and um, communism, from each other, this is my question. Because oil is emerging commodity at that time, which is a political commodity. That's determinants of, I mean, at that time, meddling in the other countries are a part of the, part of the politics and they are free to do that. They, they find themselves in, in some sort of a national duty to, to actually do that. Regime change, all of these are part of the conversation of the, the, the politics. Plus, oil being a political commodity will be a very significant determinant to actually make these uh, decisions or, or uh, driving these decisions. So. So that is one side of, of the argument that I, I think has to be considered that politics and oil are almost the same intertwined piece of uh, element in, in any foreign policies in America at that time. Secondly, the communism against the odds, that, that, and I'm just Could quoting. Could you sum up your question? Yes, please. I'm just sum up the, 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 the quotes from the memoirs of Dr. Mustadev himself is that the successors of Nikita Khrushchev at that time were not strong enough for, and to give him enough leverage to actually balance between the two powers in the Cold War to actually make the most of it and win the arguments. So the main reason was not because communism was the issue, was the lack of strong communism next, next door had, uh, didn't give enough leverage power to actually play and make the good balance between the two powers. What's your, what's your opinion about that? Thank you. Thank you. Th that one there. And this Thanks. last one. Uh, and then thank you very much for your talk. Um, in the picture you paint of communism as a quite marginal and peripheral force in Iran at the time, how does that square with both the resources that were devoted to fighting today during the, the Shah's reign, uh, you know, after the coup, and also the extent to which forces like the Mujahideen played into um, communist tropes and so on as a means of trying to gain additional support. So in other words, if communism is as marginal a force within Iranian political society in 1953, as implied by the 5% figure and certainly by the, the CIA sources you cite, why did it seem to become more of a substantial force later on? Or do you feel that that is maybe you know, illusory and never particularly gained in strength following the... the Thank key. you. Please, you can answer those. Um, well, the, the idea that Americans sort of couldn't distinguish between communism 
uh, uh, nationalism. If you take it from a very right-wing Republican perspective, yes, that for them it was the same. But I think uh, there were enough sophisticated Americans who distinguished between the two. After all, um, America had seen the nationalization of oil in Mexico. Mexico had not become communist, so it wasn't like completely out of the blue. And uh, people were familiar in American politics that in many other countries, industries had been nationalized. So, of course, at that time in Britain, a lot of industries were being nationalized. So it wasn't as if they were uh, worried that the Labour Party was communist. So I, don't, I think there was the sophistication. But uh, so I think in America, I don't think they may have wanted to merge these issues, but I think the people who were making decisions had that knowledge. And of course, if you fast forward, uh, the Mossad that was the first to try to nationalize. In 1951, um, it was considered a major sort of upheaval. Mexico had done it, it had never, become international. In 51, it was considered, uh, from the oil company's point of view, almost the end of the world as they knew it, not because of Iran, but because of the examples it was set elsewhere. Um, but, you know, in the, in the 70s, this became generally done. It didn't end up the end of the world or communism throughout the world. Many countries, even conservative countries, nationalize their oil. So uh, it, again, it was a mirage of fear of what would, would be down the road when reality, and I think oil company experts are actually they're quite realistic about such things, much more than the average person in the street. The question about independence, I, I mean, I didn't go into that. The reason the oil uh, nationalization in Iran is more than about oil. Um, it's about actually national independence, national sovereignty. After World War II, more and more countries were becoming independent from Britain, France, the Dutch. And Mossad should be put in that context that Mossad was basically a national leader like Gandhi or Diru what he was trying to do was uh, declare the independence of Iran. Now, it's true Iran was never a full colony, but Iranians viewed Iran as a semi-colony of Britain. So the taking over of the oil was a way of declaration of independence from Britain, mm -hmm. and um, the lowering of the, actually, the oil, oil company flag and the raising of the Iranian flag in the installations was seen at that time as symbolically parallel for other countries becoming independent. And this was actually seen that way in Britain too. If you read the Daily Telegraph at that time, they saw this here as another sort of colonial country declaring independence, how they, they do it after all the good things we've done for them. Uh, they're throwing us out. 
Uh, and the RAF countered this by having a squadron fly over Abadan to say, well, you can lower the flag, but we still have the bombers here. Uh, so there, there was, it's, the symbolism was there. And you can see that at that time, it was, as soon as oil was nationalized, all the letters coming in from third, well, they weren't called third world countries, newly independent countries thanking uh, Iran, uh, congratulating Iran for what they had done. And when Mossadegh went to the UN, again, he was ex received there as a, basically one of them, and he got the support of the newly independent countries basically on that ground. So it, it was, it's, it's, it's basically, it is a, should be seen in the context of a, a national independence. Oh, uh, sorry. No, sorry, did you have one more? Oh, the question of separating. Um, Again, I think on a global scale, you can say, yeah, oil was such an international commodity, it had fitted in into the Cold War context. Again, uh, this is a lot of, I think, exaggeration. The, the argument made at that time was uh, the Soviet Union was running out of oil. That's, they had their eyes on Iranian oil. Okay. So they tried to put that link. Uh, the fact was that, of course, the Soviet Union wasn't running out of oil, and if Iran had succeeded in nationalizing oil, it would not have been a major you know, undermining of Western power. That Iran would still have had to sell oil. So it, the, the worry was what the example it would set to other countries, mm -hmm. uh, rather than really ch changing the commodity control. One, two, uh, sorry, three. What about my question regarding religion and how it is the dominant factor of this? Oh, religion. I, I'm glad to say religion had absolutely no role in this. Mossad did not use religion. It does mean... Oil companies in America. American, American is dominantly Christian. Its owners, the people that own America and Britain are Christian and they use that as a reason to overthrow countries like Venezuela, Iran, Iraq, and Iran. You're, I think, you're re misreading contemporary stuff to the past. No, in no, in, in the 51, 53, if the discourse was not at all about religion, they might, they might have criticized Mossad as being irrational. He, he's Iranian, he can't make a rational sense, but they didn't use the argument that because he was a, a Muslim or we are Christians or more rational. That, that type of discourse didn't exist then. Okay. Uh, so I think accepting this argument that uh, oil was the center of this uh, coup should not uh, lead us to a wrong conclusion about to the party and its, its size. To the party was really a mass party. It, has, uh, it had organized Iranian working class. It uh, united, Workers United Council had more than 700,000 workers in it. To the party had a very powerful military, military organization, so with hundreds of members, officers, mostly in the intelligence department of the army, who even informed Mossadegh twice about uh, the coup. So we should not underestimate uh, to the party. And if it was not the leadership of the to the party and because of its cowardliness and uh, inaction and passivity, and if they could organize a resistance, that they could, but 
unfortunately, they failed to fulfill this uh, mission and they left the battleground for the coup plotters. Yeah, I think that's an important question that's often raised. I think one has to make the distinction between uh, influence or power between basically as a mass organization versus an organization can take over power. And often people make a mistake. If just because some organization can bring in 100,000 people into a square to parade, they bring in their family, children, large crowds, they can even organize a strike, you know, bring on a whole industry, a general strike. That's very impressive. One shouldn't underestimate that. But the, from there to jump to the idea that one can use that power to actually seize power you, is a big jump. The two-day party never had that position to be able to take power. So that's an exaggeration. Often two-day members also exaggerated that, especially the ultra-left in the two-day. They said, oh, we have all this influence, we can take power. And it's basically, I would say, infantile leftism there. Because to take power, you really need the instruments of power. So here the military becomes an important point. Yes, after, in 56, the military network was discovered. Actually, it wasn't really near discovery. The British knew about it all the way through. Again, it looks impressive. You look at the list, you know, 600 officers arrested. If you have 600 officers, why couldn't they have stopped it or tried to have their own coup? As Mossadegh said in his trial, you know, the two-day party didn't have a single airplane, didn't have a single machine gun. There was no threat from them. And if you look at the reality, look at the army officers, they're again mostly army officers that are relegated to peripheral positions. They're not in a tank positions to take over coup. To take a coup, make a coup in 53, and you can see this in Wilbur's report, you basically need tank officers. Coup means a tank venture. Uh, the, the tank brigades in Tehran were almost, there were only three officers you can identify as, as sympathetic to the two-day. So the three officers, there's no way they could have stopped a coup. Uh, one of them was actually outside Mossadegh's house protecting it. So it wasn't that, that there was enough officers there to be able to uh, prevent a coup or carry out a coup. Uh, most of the officers, again, you look at them, they're ju junior officers, NCO officers, not people in positions of crucial power. The one or two you have <coughs> in important positions, they're important in actually giving information, but not important to carry out a coup. Uh, one person that was actually instrumental was a captain in the Imperial Guards. The name is Homayuni. Uh, as a captain in Imperial Guards, he was part of the group that was supposed to go and arrest Mossad there. So he tells the two-day party that, you know, tonight we're supposed to go and arrest uh, uh, Mossad there. So the two-day party tells Mossad there this what's going on. Uh, so Mossad there has two tanks waiting for the uh, Imperial Guards when they come. They basically arrest, instead of they arresting Mossad, they arrest uh, 
uh, Nasiri and the Imperial Guards. So this guy is one guy. He is actually arrested with the rest. In 56, he then, after the coup, he is actually promoted because he's a linear. Then they discover, yeah, no, actually, he was part of the secret officer group. And then, of course, he's given a life a sentence to death and then life sentence. So here's one person. There's another, there was another person in the intelligence service, G2. And that person, again, was not in a position to carry out a coup. Ironically, he was in charge of uh, Nixon's, uh, Vice President Nixon, when he visited Iran, uh, his security. So if the two-day party had been in, in, in the business of assassination, they could have assassinated Nixon in 53, but they weren't in that business. So overall, uh, you look at the, the number of two-day officers looks impressive but they're not in a crucial position. Even the numbers are actually misleading. You know, 500, uh, what is the officer corps number in Iran? 66,000. So you have to put that 600 to 66,000. It was a top heavy military. <laughs> Almost everyone's uncle was a, a, a colonel or a general. Uh, so here, it's the, one shouldn't exaggerate the military uh, wing of the two-day party. And uh, the British knew that. Uh, the British knew that. So again, that's why they poo-pooed that. And I think people like, I think the realists in the two-day party uh, knew that. So they weren't talking about a coup. At most, what they wanted to do was to strengthen the Mossad, their government, to survive. And a lot of the stuff that's brought out nowadays that the two-day party undermined Mossad there. Actually, if you look at the dates, they are things that are written by the two-day party before Seattle, before July of 52, because until 52, they were very critical of Mossad for being too compromising with the United States. But after Seattle, they actually mobilized very much in behalf of Mossad there. The only people who didn't were some of the uh, youth organizations of the two-day party that had ultra-leftist arguments that they could basically overthrow the regime and set up a socialist republic and so on. Um, but again, there's that I would call it infantile leftism. Okay. And loudly enough, I think. Ah, right. Sylvia. You have one more. Where's your microphone? No, it's fine. I think I'm loud enough to talk. Yeah, you can hear me. Is yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, yeah. We talk a lot about the role of the British and American in the coup, also now recently about the two-day party. But my question is, what was the role of the Soviet itself? They just sat back and watched what happened in their next door. You just mentioned they need the Iranian oil, and uh, they are almost absent. I don't know if because of the communism and we don't have access to their archives and their documents, or they didn't do anything. Just uh, for me, it's a little bit, as an Iranian, for me it's a little bit strange. They just sat back and they didn't do anything uh, to prevent it or to do something, uh, or they didn't know it. Uh, what was exactly the role? Well, it depends what premise you start. If you start with the Cold War premise that the Soviet Union was always expansionist, gobbling up everything that this predates even the Soviet Union, goes back to um, Catherine the Great's will that the, so the Russia needed a warm water uh, 
reports and so on, which incidentally it turns out that this Catherine's uh, uh, will is a forgery. <laughs> it's not a real document. But still, it usually a lot of Cold War histories start with that premise. So if you start with that premise, then you actually wonder why was the Soviet Union so inactive? They were so eager to get oil at seaports. Why were they so inactive? So it, it is a problem. But if you start from a different promise, premise, as I do, which is the Soviet Union was not at all interested in Iran. I mean, this may be an insult to Iran, but it really was not interested about Iran. So I'll give you an example. Uh, it, we know from the documents and the discussions between Ripetov and Molotov before World War II and the beginning of the World War. They're discussing there, and we have the actual this, 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 uh, transcripts. The, the, uh, Hitler and Ribbentrop is telling the Soviets, you know, go to the Gulf, go to Iran. The British are finished. They have an open round. And the Molotov's argument is always that we're interested in the Baltic, Eastern Europe. Uh, and every time the discussion is tried to go to the India and Iran, Molotov brings it to it. And in fact, Ribbentrop writes that uh, the only time a foreign diplomat was rude to Hitler was Molotov on this issue, because <laughs> he kept on saying, we're not interested in Iran. At one point, the war starts, and they're in uh, a bunker, and uh, again, Ribbentrop says, well, the British are finished, you know. Why don't you have some plans about Iran? Molotov's answer is, if the British are finished, why are we down in this bunker? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so then when actually you, the Soviets do enter Iran in World War II, it's because basically uh, because of the transit route and the... the uh, you, Britain is very eager to actually concentrate, get a power of the oil to secure that. And that's often not in the manuscripts, in the, in the documents. Motivation of why actually Iran was occupied in World War II. Again, the argument was the danger that uh, uh, Reza Shah might make a deal with, uh, with uh, uh, the Nazis. The real reason was that the British wanted to make sure that the oil was secured. And I heard this actually from uh, Professor uh, Christopher Hill, a famous American, a British historian of the English Revolution. He happened to be in the Foreign Office at that time. And he said, if you look at that document, you won't, mention, you won't see the mention of oil in the document, why Britain went into Iran. But he says the real reason was oil. Uh, why do I know that? He says, because I wrote the document. <laughs> <laughs> so to continue, because what you realize is important. So in, when, then in 1945, 44-45, when the Soviets then bringing the issue of oil in Azerbaijan. That's also interesting. They only did that because the, they discover that the Iranian government is negotiating with American companies and Shell to give a concession to 
a foreign company in Azerbaijan, which was a, basically a no-no because the Russians had had a concession there before 1917, but it was made basically implicit that this territory would not be given to a foreign uh, concessionary. But the, suddenly in, in, in the 44, it's leaked in the Majlis that actually the government is negotiating with uh, Shell and Standard Oil for this concession. And at that point then the Russians say, hey, this is basically a concession we had now before. We want a concession there. So they, it's a, their interest is basically prompted by the Western uh, advance. And you find this actually admitted. Uh, the British uh, consul in Mashhad says this whole crisis about Azerbaijan was triggered off by the oil companies to make trying to get a concession in the north. It was their fault. Kennan, who is the you know the architect of the containment policy, he has a report from uh, Moscow arguing the same thing that if it wasn't uh, oil companies trying to get a concession in Azerbaijan, they would the Russians would never have started this issue. So when that failed. It's interesting, the Russians just shut up, shut up. There was no reaction when the oil agreement was basically torn up. People expected the Russians to react. Basically, they, they said nothing. Uh, and this was, again, a curious. It's curious if they were always on the advance. If, but if you start with the other premise, it, it's, it's understandable. We don't have the Soviet documents, but we do have some documents. The Molotov papers have been opened up. And uh, some historians have looked at that. I haven't myself. But one document, that they, actually two documents they have come across, is a letter from the Shah to Molotov uh, complaining that Stalin isn't taking enough interest in Iran. Shah says that British and Americans are very interested. Why aren't you interested in Iran? And then there's another letter from Kashani saying the same thing. So again, it shows that they were not that interested. Uh, again, when Shilak, the fisheries is, is, uh, is nationalized, the Americans who were hoping the Russians would react and make a fuss about it, they said, fine, you want to nationalize, fine, it's all right. This was a bit let down for both America and British that they, the Russians were not really very interested in it. Okay. Uh, let me get some more questions in because uh, we had one at the top there and then there. She was and there. Okay, three more. These are the last ones because the time is up for us, so we really have to leave the. Hello. Okay, go ahead. Uh, good evening. Uh, I just want to raise a few points um, as an Iranian. I have a few questions. Uh, first of all, I think that, um, do you not think that it is a misconception that um, it was an actual coup because um, a coup by definition is the dismantling of power from the bottoms up? And so um, it, the misconception is that the Shah led a coup against Mossadegh, uh, whereas uh, the Shah had more power than Mossadegh. Um, and um, it's strange to see that it was called a coup, whereas it really wasn't, because the Shah had uh, more power than Mossadegh, and therefore it was the Shah's 
um, it was within his legal right to basically um, to say to Mossadegh, you're not a prime minister, I'm going to replace you. So, I, I mean, to me, that's a misconception okay. that it was a coup. So it was, it was the, um, the Shah's legal right to do that. Um, and secondly, um, I think... Could you sum up, please, because we don't have very much time. Yes, yeah. I will. Just a question. Yes. Well, um, that, that's a good question. Do you want to try to answer that before you get to the next one? Because actually it raises okay, a lot of constitutional right. issues. Okay. Do you, do you want me to... Uh, He's going to answer okay. now. Okay. Um, first of all, your definition of a coup is when basically a military coup when the army goes and takes power. Okay. And this is what happened in August. The tanks went into Tehran, bombarded place, crucial places. It was the military taking power. So that's why it's called a coup. At that time, actually... The CIA insisted that don't use the word coup. Uh, the public, the press was not supposed to use the coup. Their argument was basically uh, it was a popular uprising. Okay, we, we, I don't want to go into how popular that was. Three thousand people don't make a popular revolt. But the question, the constitutional issue, is interesting because the argument that well the Shah could replace, had the constitutional right to replace Mossad there at any time, was not something actually acceptable. The Shah did not have that right, the, especially if the parliament had elected the prime minister. Under Reza Shah, it's true, he appointed the prime ministers, but that was not a constitutional monarchy under Reza Shah. If you go back to the real meaning of the constitution, which is modeled on the Belgian constitution, prime ministers are elected by the Majlis, and the Shah basically gives his formal signature approval. Um, some now royalists say, well, the Shah always had the right to do it. If so, why did, did would Iran have a constitutional revolution in 1906? What's wrong with the Rajars appointing the ministers? You know, uh, If the monarch has the right, why can't the Rajars make their ministers? So clearly, the idea of a constitutionalism is the Shah does not have that power. Now, the argument sometimes is used as that Mossadegh couldn't rely on the match less. And again, it goes into the question of how many deputies report. And therefore, the Shah had the right to actually uh, uh, appoint, in the absence of the match less, the, the uh, prime minister. I, 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 this is, again, a dubious argument, because in the times when the Constitution worked in Iran, when a match less was not in session, uh, the prime minister that had been elected remained prime minister until the new Majlis came. In fact, there was a, a recent period under Ravon, after the oil crisis, uh, when Ravon basically uh, double-crossed the, the Soviets on the oil issue. The Shah wanted to get rid of Ravon. He couldn't get rid of Ravon because there was no Majlis. Majlis had elected Ravon, 
So Ravomp knew he was in good, strong position until the new Majlis met. And then when the new Majlis met, the Shah could then undermine him. But in that interregnum, he was quite secure. So the Shah actually signing Farman to uh, dismiss Mossadegh, appoint Zahedi, is not constitutional. And the Shah himself knew that. That's why he was actually very reluctant to sign it. Yeah. And there is a question whether actually his signature is a forgery or whether it was his signature. Uh, Mossadegh actually didn't accept it as a valid uh, farman. It's, the signature is very bottom of the, nothing to do with the actual script. Uh, my suspicion is actually that Wilbur forged it because Wilbur himself was a forger. And if you read, if you read the Wilbur report, he says, well, there was a long two-day delay. That's why the coup was uh, postponed because there was a, a problem with uh, Farman. Uh, and he doesn't explain what the problem was, but it could be that the Farman uh, was actually taken to Cyprus where he was and he forged it. So there's a debate about that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we have time about the Shah's um, role, actually. He was very- I think we have sorry. to close, I'm afraid. So just two more qu quick questions. One, Amirani, the, the, yeah. No, down here, down here, no. Yes, no, yeah. Can I just ask a question? No, no, just a very small one. Just sorry, a little. We have a question here, please. Oh. Uh, thank you very much. Um, uh, thank you very much for the fantastic lecture, Professor Rahmian. Um, it surprises me and also uh, warms my heart to know that having spent 10 years working on a documentary about this subject, almost everything you say has been borne out by our research, which goes very much deep into the same sources and sources that have never been seen before. So the, the question of oil and communism uh, is no longer a matter of opinion. Uh, in, in our film, in our research, is borne out by facts, borne out by documents, and also interviews, audio, video, and documents, uh, including Homayuni, for example. We have footage of him uh, talking about uh, his role, and um, so it's, it really p puts it to rest. My question really comes out of what the lady said at the back. There's been, in the recent years, uh, sort of a, an attempt to revise the history of the coup, including not calling it a coup, uh, and making it a national uprising. In fact, to his final day before departure from Iran, the Shah, talks about the national uprising. Where is this coming from? Where is this new wave of trying to rewrite the history of, forget about oil and communism, uh, it's, not, it's not even a coup for oil and communism. Where is that coming from? Okay, and one here. No, no, here in the front. Thank you very much for your call. It's a quick question. Do you think Mossadegh has been naive about American intentions? or it was impossible for him at that time and in that context to guess or to analyze how far CIA and Americans would go. Mm. Okay. Thank you. Yes, please. Uh, two good questions. Yes. <laughs> uh, the revisionist history. First of all, I like revisionist history, so I don't use it as a, swear, as a smear word, some people do. Uh, so history has to be always revised. 
But the new so-called revisionist history is actually the original version. If you go back to 53, 54, those are the arguments. You, look, look, if you have a, access to Encounter, the CIA magazine, Intellectual there's a long article uh, written by someone, I, the name the, you know, was not someone I knew, who visited to Iran, and it gives the, basically the same argument that this was not a coup, the Shah had the authority, um, the Shah, the Mossadegh was unpopular, this was a popular uprising against Mossadegh, and uh, so these arguments are, were all there. Why they're suddenly coming up is, I think, much more uh, orchestrated. And so you find in the titles, it's always same words used, the myth <coughs> of the coup or the, the story about the uprising and stuff. And you, if you look at most of them, the writings, they're not by real historians. Uh, they're people working in think tanks. And then you can trace the origins of the think tank. So there is an orchestrated attempt, basically, to uh, revise the history. And what I find interesting is, if you really think that the coup was a good thing, uh, and Mossad should have gone, and it really saved Iran from communism and so on, those are arguments are not actually used so much. The the big book, the revisionist book, it's interesting, he says basically the uprising was all done by the Ahuns. So, the, if, you know, blame, blame the Ahuns, don't blame <laughs> the military. And the fact that these people actually often should be trying to uh, uh, glorify the role of the military, don't do that, they actually blame Kashani or the clerics for the coup. So it's a sort of a funny way of trying to change this, the, the, the argument. But uh, there is no real, I don't think, serious argument. So the one thing they argue, they poo-poo the hard data you would use. They would say, oh, this is all CIA propaganda. The CIA is trying to blow up its, its influence. And you can't uh, t take a word of Roosevelt's writings there's some truth in that. Roosevelt obviously exaggerates his own role and so on. But a document like Wilbur, you can't dismiss as propaganda because it was an internal document just for within the CIA as a blueprint, as a, a how-to-do book on coups for other future coups. So he's not interested in propaganda or exaggeration. He's trying to show how you carried out a coup, what's essential for a coup, and it's not so publicity. So they, they tend to dismiss all this and say, oh, this is all basically CIA trying to blow up its influence. So you can't accept the documents because none of them are true. What then you end up is basically what Zahedi says happened in, in the coup. And the last one was? Oh, Mossadegh's naivety. I don't, Mossadegh wasn't naive. Actually, often uh, in his meetings in, with Henderson, he basically needles Henderson. He knows what the Americans are doing. And they both have a good sense of humor, so that actually they can laugh about things. 
But I don't think it's naivety. His argument is, I think, closer to the idea of negative equilibrium, that you really uh, don't want to be too friendly or too opposed to one polarity. So if he eventually wants a neutral wall, Iran, he's going to have some good relations with the Soviets, but he also wants to have some good relations with the United States. Uh, and so he, what I think he doesn't realize is for some people in the Washington, uh, this neutralism is as bad as communism. And it happened very quickly too. The, the decision for the coup was like two or three months only. So well, he, hardly, he hardly had time to catch yeah. up with it. But he knew, I think, from 52 April, yeah. that the, the Americans were trying to remove him. Uh, through political process. I mean, the Ravam crisis of Seatir, that was really instigated by the Americans. So he, on the day of the coup, I have seen a document recently, he was not expecting to do anything. Okay, the reason he wasn't expecting a so coup he was... he did not prepare yeah. at all any defense yeah. against the coup. That's why I have this question. Yeah, there, the miscalculation was that he felt assured because of General Riai's assurance that he set up a system that was uh, a coup proof, that they couldn't carry out a coup because of the system that was set up in the barracks. And that's where the miscalculation mm -hmm. occurred. The, actually, this is where the CIA was important. They managed to short circuit the network that Riai had set up to be able to get the tanks into Tehran. So I think that's, that's where the Wilbur report is actually very interesting on how they short-circuited that. And that, that's where you can say the mistake was. Another mistake you can say, I don't know if it's a mistake, when the coup was clearly started, he could have called people into the streets, he could have distributed arms yes. uh, to the opposition, both some of the National Front, the two-day wanted him to distribute arms, uh, but he was reluctant to go into a civil war basically. Uh, whether that's a miscalculation or basically a reluctance to, to shed blood is something else. Well, thank you very much indeed, Professor Abraham. <laughs> so wonderful. Thank you.